0: It's been more than 10 months now since Russian tanks and troops first crossed the borders into Ukraine and began a savage and bloody attempt to conquer the entire country by brute force. We know that the conquest, at just about every stage, has proven far more difficult than the Russians anticipated, and in many parts of Ukraine, including the highly populated area around the capital of Kyiv, the Russians ended up having to retreat. The Ukrainian defenders were just too well-armed and well-trained and too determined to fight for their homeland. And the Russians were too poorly equipped and poorly organized. So great numbers of them turned tail and headed back to Russia. But before they did, before all the Russian soldiers admitted defeat and left, many of them decided to plant mines wherever they could. Explosive devices that would blow up and kill or maim anyone who stumbled across them. We have an article up on thetrumpet.com about some of the mines that were found in the Ukrainian city of Bucha. This article is by Mr. Richard Palmer, and it talks about how Russians often rigged the bodies of Ukrainians that they had killed with mines. So that way, when loved ones come to collect their dead, the loved ones instead join them. It's a really disturbing practice, but some other locations where the Russian invaders planted mines were perhaps even more disturbing. This Trumpet article states, More common than the bodies are mines hidden everywhere from houses to children's parks. What possible military reason is there for mining a playground? It'll be a long time before these places are safe to live again, and until then, the list of Ukrainian victims will only grow." End quote. So that is a special kind of evil and perversion that would prompt a soldier to intentionally target a children's park or playground. But many of these areas were mined, and many, many acres of Ukrainian farmland were mined in this way too. With total war, like the kind that Vladimir Putin is waging, destroying a nation's economy is a huge part of the goal. So with Ukraine being one of the world's biggest bread baskets, mining the fields makes sense. So this is a twisted and just an utterly perverse tactic that the Russians are using. And as our Trumpet article says, it means that long after the Russians retreat from a given area, the number of victims continues to grow. But there is an individual that I'd like to talk about today who is waging a war against these Russian landmines, and he's winning this war. This is The Sun Also Rises here on 101.3 KPCG-FM. I'm Jeremiah Jacques. We appreciate you tuning into the show, and the name of the man who we're talking about in this segment, the man who is waging a war on mines, is Ryan Hendrickson. Ryan is an American, born in Northern California in the late 1970s. And then he moved to Oregon as a young child and grew up there. And then after graduating high school, he wasn't entirely sure what direction to go in. So Ryan talked to his dad and ended up following his dad's counsel to go into the military. And this turned out to be excellent counsel because the military seemed to be a true calling for Ryan Hendrickson. He completed enlistments in both the Navy and the Air Force. And then in 2008, he transferred over to the Army. In 2010, he was on a tour in Afghanistan with the Green Berets. And something profoundly life-changing happened to him. At this time, Hendrickson was spending most of his time on combat missions, clearing the route for patrols. And the main thing that he was clearing for was IEDs, which are improvised explosive devices, and other mines. On September 12th of 2010, his crew was pushing deeper into part of Aruzgan province, near the Helmand River.
1: It was a large clearance operation, multiple ODAs, commandos, Afghan SF. Our ODA, we were tasked with the southern part moving north to meet up with the, I guess, the guys that were doing the middle push.
0: That's Ryan Hendrickson in an interview that he conducted last year with the team house. And he goes on to say that at one point, a translator with his crew, a man called Nick, ran up ahead to an unprotected position.
1: Nick had ran down to the compound breach point, and he was just like, trying to do this, this Afghan Rambo thing, follow me or something, I don't know what he was doing.
0: So Hendrickson ran down to the position where Nick was and helped to pull him back towards safety. The translator was extremely valuable to the crew since it was a combination of American special forces and Afghan militia, both of whom wanted to, you know, defeat the Taliban. And this man was the only translator between the two sides. So Hendrickson pushed Nick back towards safety, but then Hendrickson found himself in an extremely vulnerable position.
1: So I moved down to the compound and grabbed him. It was like, dude, wrong move. Pulled him away from the breach and kind of pushed him back. And then I turned, so my gun was in, you know, so my gun was facing the unknown because for all we know, there's people behind that compound wall that are waiting to just light us up so I turn, so my M4 is facing to the unknown, and he starts moving back to you know our last position, and you know I'm kind of doing the peek over, but now the corner of my eye I see something, you know a little shiny object that I, well I just got to check it out because maybe I get to shoot it, <laughs> and so I stepped inside of the breach and boom, stepped on a pressure plate IED in the doorway.
0: It was seven pounds of explosives that Hendrickson had detonated. And immediately after the explosion, the only thing he knew was that he needed to get out of the cloud of dust and
1: smoke. So, yeah, so that, you know, I hit this IED, but I didn't actually know what happened. And it didn't hurt, but I knew that I couldn't breathe. Um, The dust and the ammonia, and it just suffocated. And I was like, i have got to get fresh air i'll never forget that like i am gonna suffocate here i've got to get fresh air but i couldn't stand up i kept trying to stand up and i mean we're we're loaded down we have we have a minimum of, of three days food water bang ammo everything on us and so i'm i'm probably coming in at 300 pounds at that point but um i can't stand up why can't i stand up and you know it's like all right dude calm down just rucksack flop it real quick and catch a breath and so i'm just doing this slow you know sips of air waiting for the dust to kind of clear a little bit trying to calm down and um it still doesn't hurt and i i'm like okay recoilless rifle or i, I have no idea i've never stepped on an ied before so as the dust starts to clear all of a sudden i start to get kind of a visual observation of of what happened. And I looked down and my leg was at a 90 degree angle. So my boot was at a 90 degree angle to my leg. And I'm I'm looking at it, I was like, huh, oh, that doesn't look right. Still hasn't clicked in. <laughs> you know, the boom and you know the whole leg thing. And so grab underneath my knee and pull my leg up and my boot flops over. And then I see these two like pearly white objects sticking out of my pants. So I'm like, huh, I wonder what that is. And then all of a sudden, bam, the pain train hit me. Oh man, it hurts so bad. <laughs> I just, and then I'm like, well, what do I say? Okay. I'll just say I'm hit. Yeah. That's that's good. Yeah. You're hit. You're hit yeah. So I just started yelling, I'm hit, I'm hit, I'm hit. <laughs> I mean, it changed my life, obviously. Stepped on an IED, so it took the team a, a hot minute to get to me because, as everybody knows, where there's one, there's five.
0: After hearing one of their IEDs go off, the Taliban terrorists began firing on Hendrickson's location. So that, of course, made the situation exponentially more chaotic. But Hendrickson was finally given a tourniquet and he was fireman carried back to a defensible position where eventually a medevac helicopter was able to pick him up. But by the time his crew got him to the helicopter, Hendrickson had lost so much blood that the others were sure that they would never see him again. But the medical professionals in the helicopter applied all the first aid they could administer, and they got him to a hospital, and then eventually he was brought to a specialist facility in Germany, where he was operated on multiple times, And then he was brought home to Texas, where there were more operations at the Brook Army Medical Center. The surgeons there gave him just a 10 to 15 percent chance of being able to salvage the shredded leg and keep it. Even a year earlier, that would have been impossible, but they had developed some new methods that just might work on him. So Hendrickson ended up having 28 total surgeries each one extremely painful and and debilitating, of course, and he often wished that they would have just amputated the leg, since it was such an excruciating ordeal to go through surgery after surgery with skin grafts and everything else. But the specialists were eventually able to salvage Hendrickson's leg, at least to a degree, and Hendrickson spent months slowly learning how to walk again. After the wound, he had been medically retired from the military. But after about 18 months of rehabilitation and all kinds of arduous PT, he was able to get around again. And since he was a Green Beret, his commanding officers asked him if he would be willing to come back on active duty, mostly to train new recruits. And Hendrickson agreed to it. And he kept on working extremely hard, with rehabilitation and PT. And then in April of 2012, Ryan Hendrickson was back in Afghanistan. And he ended up completing seven more tours there. And he kept on learning all of the intricacies of how to neutralize those diabolical weapons, IEDs, and other kinds of mines that had brought so much suffering to him. Hendrickson wanted to prevent as many people as he could from having to endure what he had endured. On his website, Hendrickson writes, I went back to Afghanistan on seven more deployments so I could do everything in my power to ensure my teammates and my Afghan counterparts never had to go through that pain. So, Hendrickson spent several more years engaged in that demining work, and he was given several notable awards for his exemplary service, including the Silver Star, four Bronze Stars, a Purple Heart, and an Army Commendation Medal with Valor, and also the Frederick Award. And then in January of 2020, as a Green Beret ranked E7, Ryan Hendrickson retired from the Army. And then, when Russia's war on Ukraine broke out about 10 months ago, he felt that he needed to help the victims. So he quit his job as a government contractor and arrived in Ukraine in mid-March of 2022. And here's what he writes on his website. From Bucha, Erpen, Kharkiv, Severodonetsk, and other dangerous locations, I saw a cruel reality of war, injuring and killing civilians daily. And then he goes on to say that a huge part of that cruel killing was being done with landmines and booby traps. The ones that were on corpses of all those that Russia had killed, and on playgrounds and thoroughfares, and many of them also in fields that the Russians didn't want the Ukrainians to be able to plant and harvest anymore. And in many cases, even though the Ukrainians knew that their land was riddled with mines, circumstances compelled them to walk into the thick of it. Hendrickson writes, Ukrainians have been driven by desperation to enter known minefields to fish, gather food, or collect firewood, only to be injured or killed by mines. Farmers working their fields hit landmines in their tractors as they cultivate the ground, and ranchers when they're grazing their livestock. I knew that I had so much experience from my time in Afghanistan with the mine detector and I felt like I could be helping these innocent people who were stuck in the middle of the war. And so that's what Hendrickson has spent several of the last 10 months doing. He's gone into heavily mined areas and cleared and removed explosive hazards. This way Ukrainian civilians can start to rebuild their lives again and they don't have to live in fear of their next step. I had a tough time tracking down data about how many total mines Hendrickson has cleared there so far, but in one interview given during August, he says that during just one seven day period, he and his team removed 344 mines. So if that can be extrapolated out, it may well be thousands of total mines that he has cleared. It's incredibly dangerous work, but Hendrickson has the expertise, expertise that came to him at a huge cost, and he is determined to use it now to fight back against Russia's evil and to help the Ukrainians as much as he can. You're listening to The Sun Also Rises on KPCG-FM. Today, we're looking at individuals and organizations who are helping the victims of Russia's war on Ukraine in meaningful ways. Don't forget, you can contact the show by sending an email to tsar at kpcg.fm. For the next segment, we'll take a look at another way that some are reaching out to the Ukrainians and helping them. For this, we'll go to Talia Gregory.
2: Nine-year-old Artem was playing outside his grandmother's house with his brother when sirens began ringing in his ears. It was the early days of Russia's full-scale war on Ukraine, and the people of this area, just to the west of Kiev, were getting somewhat used to hearing the alarms warning of Russian missile strikes. But Artem's father sensed that the danger this time was serious. So he rushed outside to get the boys, and at that moment, one of the missiles struck the home. The blast tore off Artem's left arm and his father and brother were killed. This was, of course, a devastating event for the family, but after the attack, Artem and his mother were invited to travel to America, where Artem was treated and fitted with the new prosthetic limb. For six months, they will live in Minnesota while Artem completes physical therapy and is taught to adjust to his prosthetic arm. His medical and living expenses are all provided by donations made to the nonprofit. Protez Foundation. Artem is just one boy out of an estimated 12,000 Ukrainians who have lost their limbs due to Russia's brutal war. These injuries are being caused mainly by explosive weapons like mines, missiles and rockets, but have also been caused by heavy artillery fire. Many casualties are soldiers, but even innocent civilians like Artem haven't been able to escape Russia's warfare. This is a profound tragedy that is causing suffering for thousands and thousands of Ukrainians. But there are individuals committed to trying to help the wounded people to be able to go on living their lives as independently as possible. The Protez Foundation is one company trying to make a difference. Along with Artem, 31 soldiers and civilians have been able to receive help from Protez's project called Prosthetics for Ukrainians. The company has received over 600 applicants requesting help for prosthetic treatment and hopes to help as many of the applicants as possible. The Foundation's main goal for the project is to offer free, quality American prosthetics to those who have lost their limbs as a result of the war. Another nonprofit helping out is one based out of Oklahoma City called Limbs for Life. The war has greatly limited services within Ukraine, so the Limbs for Life program is doing what it can to send prosthetic equipment and supplies to regions that can provide aid. The Foundation's Development Director, Sally Dalton, explains. About half of the country is inaccessible, clinics have been destroyed. The other half has partially functioning and they are in desperate need of um, teams to come and help and also parts and components to be able to fabricate prosthetic limbs. These 2 nonprofits are just a couple examples of multiple companies and individuals working to give major life-changing aid to victims. These organizations have been able to give amputees the ability to walk again and to complete other daily functions of life. One Ukrainian soldier who was given prosthetics by Protez explained how grateful he was and what his plan is going forward. He said, I want to show the people that even without legs, the world is not ending and I want to continue to live.
0: For the final segment of today's episode, we'll take a look at a fascinating way that some Ukrainian refugees are being given a chance to fight back against some of the lies of Russian propaganda. For this, we'll go to Mihailo Zekich.
3: What you just heard, the fourth movement of Antonin Dorjak's Symphony No. 9 from the New World, could have been performed by any orchestra in any part of the world. But what you heard isn't just any orchestra. This was the Ukrainian Freedom Orchestra playing at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. Most of the world's celebrated orchestras have a home base which they operate from. But the Ukrainian Freedom Orchestra's home base, so to speak, is becoming a pile of rubble from Russian bombs and suicide drones, and the performers themselves are refugees fleeing the war in Ukraine. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is leaving many casualties. All the lives lost so far are truly devastating. But also under attack is Ukraine's cultural identity. Many in Moscow believed that the identity of a unique Ukrainian civilization is an artificial construct without historical legitimacy. Modern Ukraine was entirely and fully created by Russia, more specifically the Bolshevik, communist Russia, Russian President Vladimir Putin said in a speech last February. This process began practically immediately after the 1917 revolution, And moreover, Lenin and his associates did it in the sloppiest way in relation to Russia, by dividing, tearing from her pieces of her own historical territory, he said. Earlier, Putin called Russians and Ukrainians one people and went so far as to call Kiev, Ukraine's capital, the mother of all Russian cities. Among the millions of Ukrainians fleeing their homeland as refugees are many musicians. But just because one is a refugee fleeing his or her country, it doesn't mean there is no chance to fight. Many of these musicians wanted to fight back, and the Ukrainian Freedom Orchestra gives them a medium to do so. The orchestra is the invention of Canadian conductor Carrie Lynn Wilson. Wilson, who is part Ukrainian, was working in Madrid on February 24th, the day the war started. I just felt so incredibly guilty that I had the freedom of walking to work and making my music, and my colleagues were just hiding in their basements, she told The Telegraph in July. One of my best friends is the chorus master of Ukrainian national opera and he would send me photos of rocket attacks. I would just be sobbing at the sheer horror of it all, she said. Eventually, Lynn, whose husband Peter Gelb is the general manager of New York City's Metropolitan Opera, came up with the idea for the Ukrainian Freedom Orchestra. She teamed up with the Met and Polish National Opera to form an orchestra composed entirely of Ukrainian refugees. All proceeds earned by the orchestra are donated to support Ukrainian artists. The orchestra has toured all over the world, garnering support for their nation's struggle. And the world has given them a warm welcome. Tour stops have so far included places as diverse as Warsaw, Berlin, Amsterdam, London, Dublin, New York, and Washington. The artists themselves come from a diverse selection of ensembles, including the Kyiv National Opera, the National Symphony Orchestra of Ukraine, the Lviv Philharmonic Orchestra, and the Kharkiv Opera. For the performers, this is more than just being able to continue their jobs outside of Ukraine. Through the orchestra, they're fighting for their country's freedom. I don't have a gun said musician Yevgen Tovbysh, but I have my cello. Even if they're not fighting on the front, the musicians want to do all they can to support their country. Music can be a powerful weapon against oppression, said Peter Gelb and Polish national opera director Waldemar Dabrowski. This tour is meant to defend Ukrainian art and its brave artists as they fight for the freedom of their country, they said in a statement. Music as a weapon in war may seem strange to some, but some of the world's most iconic works came out of protesting war. Wellington's Victory, for example, was a short piece composed by Ludwig van Beethoven to commemorate the British Marquess, later Duke of Wellington, for his victory over Napoleon's troops in Spain. It premiered in 1813 in Vienna, to benefit Austrian and Bavarian soldiers who were wounded fighting the French. In 1942, the starving Orchestra of Leningrad, modern St. Petersburg, played Shostakovich's Leningrad Symphony on loudspeakers to send a message to the city's besieged citizens and the invading Nazi German troops. The Ukrainian Freedom Orchestra can now join Beethoven and Shostakovich's ranks. Together, we are going to represent Ukraine all over the world and draw attention to the horrible events going on in our country, said bassoonist Mark Krashinsky. It will unite people all over the world and show politicians that there is no place for war in the 21st century. It remains to be seen how the Ukraine war will exactly end. Evidently, the suffering of those still in Ukraine isn't going to end anytime soon but the work of the ukrainian freedom orchestra shows that you don't need a gun to fight in a war and instead of killing people the orchestra's fighting so to speak enriches lives it celebrates the best of humanity and it offers it to the whole world and it shows that despite putin's best efforts ukrainian culture will live on
0: well we are coming to the end of this episode of the sun also rises thanks very much for tuning in and many thanks also to talia gregory and mihailo zekic for their contributions to the show please check out our show notes if you'd like to learn more about the individuals and organizations that we've mentioned today and also to check out the Trumpet article that I spoke about at the start of the episode. We'll leave you today with the words of the late American children's television personality, Fred Rogers, or Mr. Rogers. When I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, Look for the helpers. You'll always find people who are helping. To this day, especially in times of disaster, I remember my mother's words And I'm always comforted by realizing that there are still so many helpers, so many caring people in the world.